Hello and welcome to The Rules of Investing. I'm your host, David Thornton. When you think of growth, you invariably think of the US mega cap tech stocks, better known as the FANGs. For a decade, share prices in these companies seemingly climbed forever. Then, inflation and rate hikes sent the value of these long duration stocks tumbling. And if 2002 has taught us anything, it's that regime change in markets has arrived with a bang. On today's show, we're discussing how the game has changed for growth stocks with Sam Ruiz from T. Rowe Price. Sam's portfolio specialist in the equity division at T. Rowe Price. And as Sam's about to reveal, they have a criteria for investable growth stocks that's made for the new world we're in. In today's episode, we discuss the muscle memory holding markets back, what makes a good growth stock in 2022 and beyond, the importance for companies to have access to cash, and a traditional sector he's bullish on that's fallen out of favour with investors. If you're an Apple Podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a LiveWire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to get notified whenever we post new content. Not a LiveWire subscriber yet? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up and you'll get access to the leading investment minds from Australia and abroad. Sam, thanks so much for joining us on The Rules of Investing. Good to be here, David. We're starting to get you know some positive signs that cost pressures are going down. Hopefully, the, the inflation number will follow. If that happens, will the multiple bubble psychology return or will investors proceed with caution with lessons learned? It's a really good question. So, we've seen a bubble pop this year, a lot of comparisons back to the tech rec. And you led not with what's the future outlook for some of these companies, for their margins, profits, cash flows, but the paradigm we have now with inflation rates and if that continues. And I'll lead off with one stat I read that I think really made this clear in my mind. So we rolled forward to the end of September, just gone. The market's down around 20, 25%. And we had basically nine single trading days that can explain all of that downturn in markets. Seven of those trading days were the market's reaction to CPI. So I think that really tells you the market's trying to figure out not necessarily on a company by company basis, who's doing better or worse, but what's happening to inflation because no one's called it yet and no one has any idea where that goes. I say we don't even know where that's going and and you kind of see these little glimmers of hope, these cracks like we saw last month to inflation. You also mentioned that there's some positive signs and we're seeing that you know, in multiple aspects, shipping costs, China, the US are down 87% year over year. We're seeing companies, Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, a lot of these te- tech companies lay off meaningful numbers of staff. We're seeing PC hardware orders decelerate really aggressively. So there's some positive signs here. The problem for investors now, and I think this is really a reflection that we've had over the past 12, 18 months is, do you go back to this market now that's underpinned by what people would call the Fed put? you know, this continual market of rates compressing lower and lower, effectively, there's no price for anything. What we sort of talk about when we reflect on this period is we went to this zone of half gravity where, you know, as you often hear interest rates are the gravity of markets. What do you pay for it? Unfortunately, as you go through it, through, you know, to this next phase of markets, we think that it's more likely we go into a more valuation constrained market. And what you want to pay for particular companies is something you have to be much more sensitive to. And one thing that I find astonishing is when you look at the allocations to ETFs this year, you can still see sizable multi-billions of dollars being allocated to some of these sort of NASDAQ, QQQ style ETFs, which tells me that investors are still stuck in this, you know, if it's optically down 20, 30, 40% by the dip, and this is the way to make money. 
um, I think it's going to be much tougher from here. So do you think there will be any of that that moral hazard left in the market where investors just think, you know, we're going through this rough patch, but the Fed will come in like it always does and bail us out and it'll be happy days again? I think the Fed's telling us time and time again they're not going to do that, but there's a lot of people fighting that and that's sort of the, the adage fighting the Fed. I think this is where it becomes tough. I and mean, what, what we do, you know, we're a long-only fund manager. We've got a part of the market that we think can really compound and grow faster over the long term. But there's a spectrum when it comes to investing. And what I would call the part of that spectrum that's been hurt the, the most are these speculative high-growth companies, some, you know, without profits or cash flows or that are aggressively investing or reinvesting in their business at the cost of um, returning, you know, those that cash to shareholders is... At the end of that, if you're not discerning between which of these companies are actually more sensibly going to grow or the companies, you know, there's so many examples here, the companies that might have extrapolated COVID demand and assumed that was forever, something like a Peloton, that, you know, it's almost laughable in hindsight to think that we started to expect that the world was going to be content working out from your living room and socialising on a screen Um and that company really aggressively overbuilt their, their manufacturing on the back of that. Um, they, that's where I think we're going to realise when we look back that this normalisation period post-COVID is going to be savage for a subset of companies. Um, there will be some winners, but that makes it much harder. Okay, growth stocks more than any other part of the market um, are driven by narratives. You know, buy into the story today and profit tomorrow. What role will narratives play um, in the coming years and especially the interplay between narratives and valuations? I think there's always, we have to acknowledge there's always a narrative in markets and something that we, you know, we often talk about is prices follow returns and the narratives follow price. And that's often why as well, you have to think about market behavior, particularly in bubbles where we tend to overshoot in both directions. Because if you have a stock like Tesla up as much as it is, if you have, it doesn't have to be a stock, something like crypto up as much as it is, investors start to justify in their mind and sort of the concept of this fear of missing out. Why is it there? You know, is is cryptocurrency effectively going to displace fiat currency? If you've got something like a Tesla, is Tesla basically going to take way more market share of EVs than anyone ever expected? Are they going to navigate this supply chain crisis seamlessly and have no hiccups in China or anywhere else that they're manufacturing cars? Um, and that's where you really have to bring it back to the underlying fundamentals and returns of a business looking forward. That's why we saw a lot of stocks overshoot in COVID. Um, I think that if I can bring that back to where we sit today, there's going to be a lot of opportunity, we believe, particularly next year, because you're going to have incredibly deep negative sentiment, bring a lot of parts of the markets down in the opposite direction. And we've already seen that for, for a lot of companies. Um, that, that I think there is going to be the biggest challenge for investors as we go into this next phase of markets because I've already talked about investors have to be a lot more valuation conscious and it's not sort of, you know, all multiples to the moon, you know, value stocks without profits. You know, it's astonishing to me now in hindsight that some of these companies trading on three times sales with no profits went to 55 times sales, you know, at their peak in the pandemic and it's no surprise they've come back to three to six times today. Um, but really from here, I think, and I'm 
I'll probably say this a lot. I think that there's going to be a lot more dispersion from here, not just in your average stock, but what we've expected from mega cap tech stocks in the past, what we've seen from some themes that have pulled forward a lot of demand that maybe would have been earned over the next five to 10 years. That really, if you've brought that forward just in the past two years, what is your growth rate from here? And sort of have you eaten your lunch too early? Has too much emphasis been placed on projected market share uh, with these companies in, in comparison to some of the other you know, fundamental metrics? I think undoubtedly there's been people have thrown the acronym TAM around probably too much, total addressable market, and sort of um, that, that, that I'd say is probably a symptom of incredibly low rates where um, if we step back for a moment, you know, there's a lot of talk about low rates, what that means for valuation. You know, if you put that in your, um, you know, as your discount rock, uh, discount model, sorry, if you put that discount rate into your discounted cash flows, obviously that's something where you can get whatever valuation you want, depending on what you put in there. What we're going to see from here, I believe is more focus on opportunity cost in the market and effectively, while a lot of investors think about the absolute returns they can generate from stocks, there is a constant fight and competition for capital in markets. And I'll give you the extreme sense here. If you now can get a risk-free rate of 4 to 5%, that's going to suck a lot of money out of the market that would have been willing to pay much higher mar- uh, multiples somewhere else. If you had parts of the market that were in what people perceived as secular decline, like energy stocks, like bank stocks, a lot of that money that's just not going to flow there is going to flow naturally to whatever is growing. And a 20% growth rate, a 25% growth rate, even a 15% growth rate looks really good and you're willing to pay more for that. There's a lot that's changed here now in terms of where the opportunity cost is providing better opportunities for investors. And that's where we're going to see a lot of this start to settle out over the next 12 to 18 months. With this multiple expansion, it's not just you know what these companies are valued at. Um, we were talking offline, you were saying how the fact these companies have such lofty PEs, that's, that's fed into the whole ecosystem of these, the, the growth structure of these companies um, and the way they're set up. Can you just take us through that? Yeah, that, that's a really interesting point I think we're going to learn more about over the next 12 months. So there are companies today that arguably may not be the companies they are or would have even... Um, been successful at all if it wasn't for the ultra low interest rate era that we had. Companies like you know Amazon, Netflix, even Tesla. What we've had is we've had the cost of money being so low that has allowed very aggressive investment in these companies and expansion. It's also allowed these companies to trade at very high multiples. Now, I'll pause there for a moment. A lot of these companies we're talking about particularly the tech space, have actually delivered very strong fundamentals over this past decade. But there's a dynamic here where I'll give you one thing that we've been focused on a lot more is stock-based compensation in some of these companies. If you are a company that has paid staff when you're, you know, the valuation of your company is very high and you've paid them in stock, I'll use a um, probably a far too extreme company, but you you lure someone in saying, I'll pay you a million dollar total comp, um, but I'm only going to pay $100,000 cash and you're probably happy to take a $900,000 per annum bonus in stock because our stock's never gone down and we've compounded 20% per annum. 
If you now have the flip side of that environment where some of these stocks are down 50, 60, 70, 80% and you're an employee there, you're probably coming back to that company saying, I don't really believe in the stock you've been giving me, give me more cash today. So the way that those companies finance themselves in the future, the way that they lure and attract talent in the future is going to change. Now, you might see increased layoffs and attrition in some of these companies. Um, you might not. You might see them continue to aggressively chase staff with stock-based compensation and further dilute shareholders, which, which is a worry. Or you might see them expense that via more cash-based expenses, um, which means you effectively see that hit profits. You still maintain some positions in these big tech companies, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, um, I think NVIDIA. Given all that we've spoken about, why not get rid of a lot of them? So that's a very good question. There is, I'd say, going to be very different paths that these companies take from here. And I will say that the market is far more discerning now in terms of not just the growth prospects of a company, but what they're doing to manage their expenses. And I'll give you a few examples. We've got Google effectively in the last quarter that said, we're not going to hire as many staff, but we're going to put on another 6,000 staff in the next quarter alone. You've got a company like Amazon that continues to spend multi-billions of dollars on this Alexa smart speaker. <clears throat> they're the only streaming platform that hasn't cut content spend. Um, and I think probably the most telegraphed today is you've got Facebook or Meta effectively saying, we're going to reinvest all of that free cash flow from our core business into this metaverse side project. And you've seen these companies punished on the back of that without that cost discipline. What you have to acknowledge then from here is we have seen an incredible decade where these companies have driven the overall index. They are I would say one of the sole reasons that it's been really hard for active managers to beat the index because in that world of ultra low rates that have fueled their growth and the fact that it's been a long time since we've had a recession, that they are very economically sensitive businesses that haven't been fully tested. Will management in the face of a recession actually be willing to cut costs and sacrifice that sort of growth that they've been so hungry for in the past? So. How do you think about that in terms of constructing a portfolio? For us, we're a global portfolio. Um, we're actually, we have been for a long time quite underweight the US and for a long time for five years, we've been underweight these mega cap tech stocks. So the only company we're currently overweight today is Amazon. Um, and Amazon has its own cost pressures that are laid out and, and we have a much lower position in that company than we have in the past. But effectively, there's two dynamics you have to think about here as an active manager. We're managing risk for our investors as well. And you've got a dynamic where over the past two years, the weight that these stocks have taken up in our benchmark is um, quite incredible. So you've got something like Apple that was about 2% of the benchmark in 2019, and now it's around 4 to 4.5%. So owning nothing in one of these companies can be larger than your single biggest active bet that you're taking that you're actually backing in a company. The other thing is that we are talking quite short term. So some of these companies might be more challenged over the next 12, 18, 24 months, but have some of the themes that we think have the best secular prospects into the future. Something like cloud computing, um, 
artificial intelligence, quantum computing, machine learning, um, even something like e-commerce um, and advertising as well. Advertising is in the face of a recession today where you're seeing some of the ad budgets being allocated to these platforms decline quite aggressively and will probably continue. Um, but how much do you want to sort of hold you know, your conviction that they do nothing over the next two, three years when there's a very you know, strong likelihood they could very quickly re-accelerate as well. So we want to have keep a foot in some of these companies at a very low weight just to make sure that we can really pick that inflection point very, very quickly. You spoke before about the difficulty for active managers uh, in beating the index, but by the same token, it's kind of like, who cares when the returns are what they were? Um, but now do you, can you see a situation where the market you know, the NASDAQ doesn't just move as one one unified thing and there are great dispersions. And by extension, does that present more opportunities for a growth manager? Yeah, so I think that presents more opportunities for everyone. It's been a really tough part of the market um, when you can see these companies growing 20 25% year in, year out, you know, profitable growth, strong free cash flow, um, that they've been really good investments. Um, the fact that that's more questionable now the fact that we are going into a period for markets we haven't seen in a long time with higher rates, with higher inflation, is going to present very different opportunities. Um, some that I've alluded to, such as financials, for example, whether the entire secular decline and the fact that they have been structurally under-earning is changing um, under our feet. So you said that for growth investors, I'd say that for all investors the spectrum is much wider. Um, I'd also say to distinguish some something that we do in terms of how we approach growth investing, some people think it's very binary. It's sort of you're holding these ultra high growers that are all software businesses, bioprocessing, life science, healthcare businesses, um, you know, super speculative dream kind of narrative stocks. We've always thought about it as a spectrum where you can have your cyclical growth stocks, more your durable growth stocks, even your high secular growth stocks. One thing that we've done is recognize that we don't think we're going to an ultra low inflation and interest rate world anytime soon. Um, and there's some outcomes out of this pandemic that means we probably settle at a high level of inflation. So for us, we've actually, if you were to simplify the construction of our portfolio, we have since about April this year moved down from more of that high secular growth type companies, more to that durable growth, a bit more in the middle, understanding you need a bit more of that cyclicality and inflation protection in a portfolio. Okay. So what fundamentals do you look for in those cyclical growth and the durable growth companies? So I think that this is really interesting. Like I'll give you a couple of examples where some of these cyclical companies that people might've never even attached growth to that so purely cyclical, now cyclical growth. You've got a company like Nutrien that we're invested in, which is effectively a fertilizer. They do potash, which BHP, everyone closer to home, is probably very aware of, of um, that commodity. Based out of, out of Canada, historically very, very cyclical, but as a result of the war, effectively 40% of the supply of this potash comes out of Russia and Belarus. And if you take 40% of global supply of a commodity out of the market at a time where we're literally staring in the face of a hunger crisis because we haven't got enough grain or fertilizer coming out of Eastern Europe, there is going to be a lot more demand for a structurally undersupplied commodity like potash, for example. 
Um, other examples, if you're thinking about higher interest rates um, and how you think about that within inflation, we can get interest rate exposure via a US retail trading platform or broker, Charles Schwab. Um, think Comsec here locally, probably um, shouldn't say this, but a better platform than Comsec. <laughs> However, this is a business that is organically growing high single digit to low double digit in its own right and has done an acquisition that's accretive to the bottom line as well that they're transitioning to. But this is a business effectively that had around $9 billion of cash sitting on the balance sheet. This is deposits from their customers. And when you've got the Fed basically buying all these money market instruments, pushing rates to zero, they're earning nothing. And when you see rates do what they've done today, effectively you get that leverage to higher rates and what that does flowing through to your net interest income and your bottom line, but with no credit risk. So that's a business where we can start to say, if we don't get that inflection in rates, which fair, it's fair for people to call out investors are paying for, you've still got the organic growth of that underlying business that they're going through as well. Just makes me think, you know, growth investing has been an exciting um, place to be the past decade, but it doesn't have to be, this sounds maybe a little bit trite, but it doesn't have to be sexy investing. It can be, you know, a more boring flavor in, of investing um, that has, you know, lower levels of growth, but like you say, durable growth for the long term. Yeah, spot on. I think, I think you say it's not very sexy. I think a lot of investors will say, traditional investing the way it should be, actually focusing on companies that have real profits and cash flows and good market share, growing that, you know, even slowly sometimes isn't a bad thing. Um, I, I think it's, if, if I was to come back, the, the most dangerous thing here though is I feel like a lot of this has been a very binary debate. It's been a debate for the past 12, 18 months around do you want growth or value, yes or not? Do you want energy or financials or tech or communication stocks? There is a very big spectrum in the middle there. And there are going to be some companies on the spectrum I'm saying investors need to be more cautious about, which is even profitless companies that are going to be excellent stocks from here. And, and, and I'll distinguish something here, which is um, one very key thing we're doing in setting a higher hurdle for some of these more, I'd say, speculative, even today, profitless companies. And that is access to cash today. So you've got, we've got a couple of companies that investors always talk to us about. Um, I'd say that the company people ask us the most questions about is Rivian, which is an upcoming electric vehicle manufacturer. This company is down a lot from the IPO, but what they were able to do in that IPO in an incredibly hot market late last year was raise $19 billion of cash in an incredibly cash intensive car manufacturing industry and what they've Nin done- 19 billion, 19 in, billion. In, in equity. In, yeah, correct. You'd think that in this, this uh, market, uh, fundraising would be more on the debt side. So, so this was at the end of last year, okay. 2021, when we were before the bubble right, popped. Right, okay. okay. Before the bubble pop. So what that effectively does is gives them an incredible moat around their business because outside of Tesla and a couple of other- EV companies like Lucid and a couple of other Chinese ones, it is going to be so hard for any new entrants to come in and compete and they're just not going to be able to raise anything like Rivian was able to, able to raise. Access to cash today and an attitude from management that they're not going to further dilute shareholders and they're going to have more sensible measured growth over the next three to five years when raising cash is much harder is something that we look for and there's a number of those out there. 
The US seems to be headed to some form of a recession by some definitions that are already there. You'd assume that that means an increase in mortgage uh, stress, bad debt provisions. Um, however, you're bullish on banks. Um, give us the thesis. I did kind of allude to that. And I think the fact that you're asking why would we be bullish about banks today is the very reason why we're being contrarian on this because they're so deeply out of favour, particularly in North America, which is where we've been adding to banks in our portfolio. What you've had, and I, I hinted at this before, is you've had a period of structural under-earning by banks over the past decade. Banks effectively have one product and that product is money. And the price of money has basically gone to zero. So your, your good that you're trying to sell your customers basically is worth nothing. At the same time, you've got these incredibly enormous large institutions that have very large branch networks and cost structures. They've, they've massively underinvested in tech, so they're trying to catch up to where they need to, need to be, which is a very big spend for these banks. At the same time, low interest rates has really fueled innovation in fintechs, which are starting to steal away their customers by offering these sexier, you know, high cash rate products. If you think about everything I just said then, all of that has, effect, has effectively rolled over over the past six, nine months. We now have the cost of money going up a lot versus where it was historically. We've got fintechs. You know, we heard anecdotally one private that was filing for bankruptcy in 60 days and effectively if they couldn't get access to cash. They're not getting that same competition from those fintechs. Their branch networks are being rationalized. What all of that means effectively is we're going to see a structural new zone of the returns that these banks generate. So historically, 9 to 10% ROEs, we think they can sustain 12 to 13% ROEs from here. The big question mark from the market is, but what about this recession and what about the credit cycle? And we just don't think we're going to see a credit cycle anything like the GFC, yet the market is trading these banks at a historical low trough around nine times forward earnings. So if the credit cycle isn't as bad as what we think, we all know that the net interest income and net interest margins are much better than where they were, then a lot more of that flows through to the bottom, bottom line. So if you can pick the banks that have the better deposit franchises, so retail depositors versus some of these more institutional customers, so institutional customers are probably much more rate sensitive and will move their cash away from you. The right banks we think can double over the next three to four years. And if that happens, and if the market starts to believe that the credit cycle's not as bad and that we do see a structural new zone for where ROEs end up, that these banks will, will re-rate from these levels. Just looking at your top 10 holdings here, um, and for banks, JP Morgan Chase is the one. What makes them the pick of the litter? They're not the pick of the litter. So our, our, our process is very much diversifying globally and we have around 200 companies in the portfolio and we're constantly trying to think about how we can diversify if there's a theme we like across different end markets and industries. So JP Morgan, I'd add to that, we've even got Huntington Bank shares as well. We've got some more regional banks in the US like Signature Bank and Western Alliance Bank, um, even emerging market banks, which are a little bit different to what I was talking about before, so India and Indonesia. Um, so also, also Brazil, you mentioned Brazil. Brazil. So, so our second largest position in our entire financials portfolio is one of these more speculative high growth um, I would have said profitless a couple of months ago. They've just turned profitable new bank, um, which is 
it's a fascinating story that's been able to grow their customer base since 2013 to 70 million customers, primarily in Brazil, but also expanding to, to Mexico um, and Colombia at the same time. So they're listed in Brazil. And they've also got a, a US listing as well. Let's tie this off. What other corners of the market are you guys interested in? So it's an interesting question because we are very much bottom up, so not not so thematic. I'll, I'll start off by saying that we are hunting aggressively for those companies that we would say are very idiosyncratic, not tri- tied to rates, can be something that defends in a recession. Um, and we have found a number of those companies like Daiichi Sankyo in Japan, which basically has an antibody um, drug conjugate technology. Effectively, what that means is they're curing breast cancer, but rather than giving you a small dose of chemo to your whole body that hopefully kills some of the cancer but doesn't kill you as the person, they've got a heated missile that effectively does a much more lethal dose of this chemo just to the cancer cells. That's not a company that's going up or down based on whether rates go up or down. Um, And in fact, we think that they can more than double their revenues just on the back of this being the standard of care for breast cancer. Um, I'll give you another example, Ashdead, which a lot of people in Australia are probably familiar with, a very unsexy business called Kennard's Hire. Ashdead is listed in the UK, but more than 90% of their business is basically a Kennard's Hire equivalent in the US, so Sunbelt Rentals. This is a business that when we met with last month is still saying there is no sign of a recession at all. In fact, we can't even get enough equipment for the demand that we have for construction and renovation. It's primarily commercial is what they do. And they're still passing through 7% year-over-year inflation to their customers. So we're really trying to think bottom-up, stock-by-stock, how we expose the portfolio to some of these things. If we step back, though, and think about some of the themes from here over the next five to 10 years that we still have a lot of conviction in, we still really believe in emerging markets. And I think there's a lot of fear in EM at the moment, particularly because of what's happened in China, but also really high US dollar. But the fundamentals and the and the very large reacceleration we've seen in some parts of EM, like India, like Vietnam, like Indonesia, some of our best performing stocks over the past four or five months have been in these parts of the world, particularly as some things start to shift under the covers. So what's happening with you know, China being the world's manufacturer, if you've got a lot more concern around what's happening there politically, but also the risk to your supply chain, we've got something like um, Vietnam. That's a, that's a key beneficiary of people trying to get their supply chains somewhere a little bit less risky. Um, outside of emerging markets, you know, we still really are very positive on areas like cloud computing. One thing that we learned during COVID, which is quite fascinating, is you've got two enormous companies in Microsoft and Amazon that basically own cloud computing. Google is competing with those two, but burning $10 billion of cash just to stay up with their leadership. What does that mean? It's going to be impossible, if not incredibly difficult for anyone else to ever enter that industry if Google itself can't even do that at a profit and needs to spend $10 billion to do that. So some of these themes, you know, you ask, what are we still highly convicted in? There's a lot of big top-down opportunity out there. The problem, if we bring it back to exactly where we sit today, is how you time your run and you think about your horizon as we do have potentially higher inflation and, and rates for longer, as we start to go into this economic cycle where parts of these businesses are very economically sensitive to that, that cycle. Um, 
but it's about how you sort of fish in between those where there will be some very unique opportunities. So I've, I've made a little bit of a list here. So idiosyncratic, uh, durable, high secular, cashed up, or with the ability to, to get cash, um, and then you've got to time your run. You need to time your run always. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, Sam, we always finish with three favourite questions. Uh, I always ask the guests. Question one, what's the one thing investors are getting wrong about markets today? I think I think we've touched on it already. I think a lot of investors are still thinking that the market is going to resettle back to where it's been over the last decade. And that is just choose a big company with the right end market and don't think as much about valuation and the rest will take care of itself. And I'd say that if we don't see central banks come in with ultra accommodative policy and flush the market with liquidity, then the market, that that concept of opportunity cost, the, the, the constant fight for money means that these companies will not re-rate or see the same valuations anytime soon. You know, we'll eventually get to another bubble where I gave you the examples of profitless companies trading on three times sales in 2019, blowing out to 60 times sales. It sort of it feels like a joke in hindsight that we ever got to some of those levels. Um, but I think investors need to recognize that from here, there's going to be a lot more prudence from the market. And I would actually say some level, it's a weird term to use, but some level of emotional scarring for investors where if you've sat there and put you know, a big chunk of money in one of these stocks or crypto in November last year, um, you've lost a lot of money and it's probably going to, there's going to be a lot of water that needs to go under the bridge before you're willing to step in at those same levels. Question two, could you share a story of a big win or a big loss you've had uh, in your career? Um, what happened? What did you learn from it? I think this is a, it's, it's not going to be a stock that no one's heard of, which is the sort of the ones that we like to talk about more. But Amazon, I think is a really good example of Right now, when we're talking about how investors need to be much more skeptical of some of these speculative companies, um, it's an example of you can still identify the exceptional companies and do very, very well. So we've held Amazon. It's the only company we've held consistently without selling since inception in 2008. Um, it's up more than 50 times since when we invested in it. But this is a company where I mention it because today there's this intense debate, and I've even talked about it, where, you know, be cautious about profitless companies. Um, I'm saying don't avoid them altogether, but set a much higher hurdle. And Amazon's an exa a great example of a company that was continually profitless, but reinvesting into very fruitful growth in that company, continually innovating, obviously getting to market leadership in the business that we all know today, particularly e-commerce and retail. But very smart management have an incredible ability to pivot and to find new areas of growth. So if you think about what's the most profitable areas of Amazon today, it's not this e-commerce unit, it's actually their cloud business and their advertising business. And they kind of got into cloud, they commercialized their cloud business a little bit by mistake or sort of stumbled into that part of their business. Um, and I'll, I'll throw out, I mean, that that's the best company for us. And, and the lesson from that is sometimes you need to let your winners run and sort of the something you learn through growth investing is not trying to trade these companies because the true growth businesses can continue to compound your wealth sustainably and if you can compound that sustainably the wealth generation on the other side is is very large but i would i would say another lesson from that is and it's very recent is backing really good management can sometimes 
be you know the ultimate ingredient in success. So we throw out Netflix, which I think is an exceptional example of one of these companies in COVID that all of a sudden went, oh my goodness, we've completely saturated our market. You know, where's all the new subscribers gone? Did we really just bring forward a decade of future growth in just 18 months? And all of a sudden they've turned around and said, well, what do we do to reinvigorate this, this business? For anyone that didn't know, you can now go on for around a six or $7 monthly subscription with ads. And effectively, people thought that would cannibalize their business. But what we're learning now is that's actually going to re-accelerate subscriber growth and actually result in a higher per user average revenue. So that's just an incredible management team that's been able to solve for a problem and then get back to growth. So sometimes you also need to make sure you don't underestimate some of these very strong management teams um, too much. Question three, if markets were to close tomorrow for five years and you could only hold uh, shares in one company, what company would that be and why? It's a very good question. I think that the five-year part of that is what really helps you to just, you don't have to mark to market, get rid of all the volatility over that time period. I think it's a company that we've already touched on very briefly and it is this company, New Bank. This is a business that has basically brought a digital, almost social network approach in engaging users in an underpenetrated market with a very lazy traditional banking sector across LATAM. It's a business that we think can grow revenues by about 60% per annum. Predominantly, they've got a very successful credit card business where they're taking very big share in Mexico and Colombia, where they're now the, the largest issuer of new credit cards in those markets. They've already grown, as I mentioned, 70 million customers in that incredibly short amount of time. They've got, which is which is fascinating, they've got the engagement scores that social media are typically able to obtain, which means in the future, their ability to engage their customer base and then cross-sell into new products is very strong. Um, this is a new company. They've got a very long pathway here that's underpenetrated. But effectively, what we've been banking on with this company is that they can release a lot of operational leverage in their business and accelerate their pathway to profitability. They actually surprised us with their last result in just getting over the line to being a profitable company today. And we expect that to scale up um, very, very quickly from here. Sam, this has been a great chat. Thank you so much for coming on. We'll have to have you on soon. Thanks, David. That's it for today's episode. Hope you enjoyed it. For more daily content like this, be sure to sign up to livewinemarkets.com. We'll see you next time.